apple is never worried when you when you pick an apple off of its tree, it will grow another one. So beware the apple tree that doesn't want to give you its apples because they're all going to be rotten. And I look at that like money should flow through my life. If money ever comes in and stops where I'm not investing it, I'm not risking, I'm not giving, I'm not paying taxes, I'm not spending it on my household. If money just flows through and stops, it will rot. It's, it's not going to work. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who aim to build fewer walls, longer bridges, and bigger tables with their lives and work. My guests want to leave the planet much better than they found it. And I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. Friends, my guest today is fantastic. Hank Fortner lives in LA with his beautiful family. He is the GM of artist management at Rock Nation, and he is the founder of Adopt Together, a nonprofit crowdfunding platform that bridges the gap between families who want to adopt and the children who need loving homes. And over the past few years, they have helped thousands of families raise tens of millions of dollars to adopt children in over 60 countries around the world. During this conversation, during our conversation, we talk about his upbringing, we discuss money and abundance, we talk about all the craziness of the adoption world, and so much more. This is a solid conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Before we dive in, however, allow me to remind you that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Some of my favorite times during the week are when I get messages from you, not just on email, on social media, and all over the place. But I love getting emails and messages from you where listeners, you all, are telling me the struggles of giving a damn, the different ways you're giving a damn. You're asking for advice, and I am glad that I get to help, even in a little way, in your journey as you grow to become a damn giver. So please reach out anytime and for any reason, and make sure to follow us on social media at Let's Give a Damn Everywhere to keep up with everything we are doing and will be doing in the future. 2021 is going to be amazing. We have so much in the works that you won't wanna miss. So email me, follow us on social media. Let's continue to build this community together. And now, here's my conversation with amazing human and amazing damn giver, Hank Fortner. Let's go. Hank Fortner, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. We've I think we've been trying to schedule this for like two years or something. Like yeah. not exaggerating. I think it's been two years. Way too fucking long. But here we are. Here we are. And that's what counts. We are here exactly. at, the, at the end of 2020. Um, and it's the right time, right? Maybe we weren't supposed to talk two years ago. I'm I believe super deeply and all things happen for a purpose. And so here we are at the end of 2020 talking about a lot of cool stuff. So I'm so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great. I think my life is infinitely more exciting every year. Yeah. I feel like my life gets more and more exciting. I have more and more to say, and I feel better about all the things I'm saying. That's <laughs> so I feel like it's better. If you can catch me in another two years, I'll be so much more evolved and interesting. So Well, we'll do one great. now, and then we'll start planning next month for the next one, and then Deal. it'll be ready in two years. Deal. You're, I mean, you're a busy dude. So yeah, we, we both are. I It's not like I... I'm always super patient with podcast guests because... Um, I always have a lot of people in the queue and, you know, random ones will come up where like last week I interviewed Matthew McConaughey and, uh, and that was like a random one where it was like his book was coming out, 
they gave me a date for like two days after I asked. And so we had to like schedule that one in. But I have like, I mean, I literally have 20 people right now that I'm, that I'm fumbling around with dates. And then when those 20 are up, I have another 40. So there's no shortage of amazing, amazing. people. Amazing I people do. I will say you are, Nick, one of the most persistent and consistent people to ever like follow up. Like usually I'll say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like with a friend or somebody or like yep. I get asked to do podcasts or I get asked to speak at stuff and you push it off a couple of times. It's like the rule of threes. By the time the third time reschedule, you just both decide it's not meant to be. Right. And you've been extremely consistent. So whoever your like CMS is or whoever your person is who basically is like, it's been two weeks now, let's follow up and find out if this person, it, it's just, it's really fascinating. So your success is 100%. I'm deciding the secret sauce of your follow-up nature. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. I have gotten pretty good. I mean, I've always been sort of good at that. And then when this whole podcast thing came on the scene three years ago, before I even knew what Let's Give a Damn was going to turn into, I had to learn that game because there was geography to work with. You know, I did most of mine before the pandemic in person. So I'd fly around and do these. And uh, yeah, you just have to work a lot of schedules. So I've gotten no, really good it, at... Yeah, I think it's worth pausing... Because uh, I do think you should do a podcast on how to uh, turn a no into a yes. Because it's not like it was a no that we would do this podcast, but you were never douchey. I probably have 100 emails back and forth with you or my assistants. And I've like fired and rehired three assistants <laughs> since. So like your emails got forward. Like, But you were very consistent. Uh, and I just think, I mean, again, I'm not Matthew McConaughey or anybody cool at all. But you were just uh persistent without being douchey that's i think that's an art man i i probably should do that podcast um yes. i i think that's a good idea because i have learned a lot um that's wonderful well thanks for that encouragement i didn't mean for you to open up and start complimenting me but here we are 100 emails and two years later i'm so excited about this uh conversation so let's start with just talking about this ridiculous pandemic that we're in the middle of, right? You're in the, and we'll get to talk about what you do for work or, you know, part of your work uh, is in the music industry. So start with your family. Then we'll talk about how the pandemic has affected the music industry, but how are you and your family? How have you guys been doing the last seven, eight, nine months? What, what has life looked like? What has changed? I feel guilty saying this, but we are having an incredibly great year. Uh, I feel bad saying that because I know a lot of people have lost their jobs, loved ones, health. It's turned worlds around. And we're not out of that mix either. We've had a lot of health scares. We've had a lot of health issues. We've had a lot of mental health issues with our daughters going to school over Zoom and like having to deal with being in a oh, room yeah. all the time and being home. Like there's a lot of challenges for sure, not nearly what people have faced. Our favorite thing has been it's caused us to ask questions about everything in our life. Do, do I need to be on a plane every 48 hours? Do we need to go out to those stupid birthday parties all the time? Do I need to show up to this event? I, I, I'm aware now of how much of my time and therefore my life I was wasting being busy, being in motion. And so you start to realize what is, I mean, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind is that we started calling, um, critical things that we did with our time, essential businesses. And I'm starting to realize that I had very little essential in my life and a whole lot of peripheral, whole lot of extra, a whole lot of things that made me feel important, busy, effective, things I did out of insecurity or things I did out of opportunity that was like, well, I should probably do that. 
that it wasn't essential. And so I think when you boil it down to the essentials, it's been amazing for our family. It's been amazing that it's, it's been really clarifying for us. I would have to jump in that. I feel guilty category as well. I mean, it was hard at first. Uh, you know, I let's give a damn is still growing and it's turning into a bunch of different things, but I still pay the bills as a consultant. And at the time when March rolled around, I had a new set of clients that were all in the, uh, live events, public speaking, uh, production world. And literally overnight, I lost everything. I lost tens of thousands of dollars in April alone that I, that I had worked toward. There were different projects I was working on, all these things that were happening. It was gone, like overnight, as it was with so many people. And I think this is not to make anyone feel bad because there are certain things that are outside of our control that we have to work through. And a lot of people aren't as blessed maybe as you, you and I, are and were during this season. But I was not going to take it sitting down. And I spent the last two weeks in the first week, last two weeks of March, first two week of first week of April, just going back to the drawing board. Okay, I'm not going to bitch about this. What am I going to do? What are we going to do? And these last seven, eight months have been the most fruitful months of my career, maybe. I don't, I don't know if that's that's too much to say, but I think it goes back to, it's a lot of mindset stuff. It's a lot of discipline stuff. It's a lot of saying like, how am I, I can whine about this and I can be super negative about what's going on. And there's a lot of shit to be negative about. I mean, hundreds of thousands of our fellow Americans have died and millions of them have, I just got right before you got on, I was texting my cousin whose wife uh, contracted COVID a few days ago and she's like really getting hit by it. I mean, the, the, the everything, all of the, the achy joints and the fever and the loss of, and she's like not breathing well, they're like scared for her life. And uh, like, that's still happening. And yet we're able to work through that and say, I'm okay, this shit is happening, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to stay down. You know, we need to yeah, make this sure. work. And nobody tells you about, I, I had a positive COVID test on the 19th of October. Mm. So I picked up COVID that we not, I don't know exactly know where. And I was flying across the country. I golfed with my dad on a Saturday. I had a fever and the body aches and the shakes on a Sunday. My dad got, my dad was sick then on a Monday. My mom got it. All, all my Jeez. siblings, my wife, like I passed it on to everybody. I was a super spreader. And if, or, I would not, not the way that news is using that yeah. phrase. I was, yes. I spread it to yes. everyone in my family. And wow. So even in that terrible, awful sickness, even that was clarifying of like, for a, there was a solid day there where I was like, I'm going to end up in a hospital or on a ventilator or, like it just sucks. It's it is a terrible thing, and yet at the same time, it and I again for us as a family, I lost six figures of income. I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. of income this year, but I still probably wouldn't trade that for us personally as a family. I'm not saying I wouldn't trade COVID or whatever. I wouldn't trade the clarity and the bonding that we've done as a family uh, for the money or for not having been six of those two and a half weeks, I, I would, uh, I'm just so grateful for the season that we've gone through as a family. Again, I say that very carefully to be inclusive of other people that this has not been something totally. they're grateful for, but I, I just feel like our families is different and we're never going to go back to the life we were living. Yeah. And I hope that, I mean, our world's going to obviously look way different after this, right? You're in the music industry um, all industries are going to change, right? Like there's no industry that's been left untouched by this. And I think that what you've learned, hopefully, and what I've learned is worth 
the tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars that we haven't made or lost, right? And I, to me, it's been worth its weight in gold, all the things I've learned. I mean, I probably, not unlike you, traveled all the time, was on planes all the time, wasn't home very much, and when I was home, tried to make it count, right? When this thing happened, and I'm in my backyard now, in my shed, like working out here, and the kids are knocking on my door every five minutes, and I'm having to get used to this new way of living, I honestly... I mean, I, I got mad at myself at first. I felt embarrassed at how negatively I was thinking about it. Like, I'm not going to be able to make this. I love my family to the moon and back, but I'm not used to being around them all this much. Yeah. And how is this going to work out? And it's been fucking great, man. Like, it's been my my son every single day now. He he gets a break around midday, around noon in school, and he will come out from, a, you know, get off his Zoom class, come out here, and I'll have finished lunch by then. And so he'll come out and say, love you, Papa. And then he'll grab my plate and my fork and my napkin and whatever else here. And he'll take it in. It's yeah. become like a ritual now where he comes and takes my dishes and never asked them to. Like a month ago, he just started doing that. That's like a cool thing that would have never happened because I always ate out or packed up my lunch and went with me or didn't eat at all. Like I wasn't here at lunch right. yeah. hardly ever. So yeah, whatever we're learning here, hopefully it's worth its weight in gold for our families and for our careers and, yeah, and whatnot. How is the how is the music industry? Obviously, people know how this has affected the music industry. But what's yeah, it mean, looking like right now? All you have to do is watch Live Nation stock, and you can see how the world feels. Jeez, yeah. About it, and I think in a large part, I mean, obviously, the business is upside down. I think it's going to be very purifying for a lot of people and a lot of artists and a lot of talent. I mean, the main source of revenue or a, one of the main sources of revenue, one of the biggest ways in which artists and teams and businesses make money is live events. That's where the concessions make money. That's where the Ubers and the taxis and the cities make money. And that's where the venues make money. And that's where production makes. I mean, you think about the people think about it. They're like, Oh, it's so crazy. This one artist can't tour. It's like, nah, man, there's like, there's hundreds of millions and billions of dollars worth of revenue in 40 different industries connected to that artist being on tour. Like wild. It's not that person's life. Like those artists, most of those artists that can do stadium runs or can do like an arena run, they, they're going to be okay. They got enough money or enough advances. They're going to be fine. It's the sound and grip and trucking and transpo and all the things that you don't see that I think those people are the most affected by the business. And that's the thing. And the theater industry, I mean, the theater industry is, yep they don't live off big advances or even a big paycheck. So you're talking about taking a whole industry to its knees. It's much bigger than the fact that a pop star can't go on the road. Uh, Cause they're going to find ways to make money because of yep. who they are. It's, it's the people that, that, that people don't know live and breathe and, and, and run off that bus drivers. Think about bus drivers. Yeah. Think about people that, you know, had to, they got to reinvent and they got to find new ways to do that. So, I think the music business is trying to figure it out. I think there's been good news in the last 48 hours about this yep. vaccine that creates a lot of confidence, which is what you're looking for when it comes to booking rooms and booking tours and building shows and spending money. Uh, but the two biggest questions we're asking are a year from now or whenever it comes back are number one, are people going to be comfortable getting packed in a stadium or be getting packed in a nightclub to watch a show or getting packed in an arena? Are you going to feel comfortable? Number two, one, and number two, are you going to be able to afford it? Are you going to be able to afford a $150 ticket to your favorite show and 50 bucks for a VIP seat and a hundred bucks for like, I think there's, there's a lot of those questions. And I think what it's doing is in a, in the best way, 
it's forcing every artist, everybody to not be dependent on a singular thing. Mm. One of the things, uh, there's a great book out right now called Psychology of Money. I highly recommend it. Um, and one of the things he says, the most foolish thing you can do with money is have a s- single source of income that supports your spending habits. Stupidest thing you can do with money. Yeah. That describes 80% probably of Americans' workforce. Oh, more than that. Job, yeah. paid me this much and I'm going to spend, and that covers my lease or my rent or my whatever. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to any of us. We should all be aware of the fact that we have to find multiple sources of income. Those multiple sources of income need to lead to a very well below our means. Jay-Z said, if you can't, if you can't buy it twice, you can't afford it. Mm. And I feel like that is uh, the world is being disinfected by the sunlight of COVID for everybody to realize like, hey, there, there was a lot of us and a lot of industries living above beyond our means and it is reminding everybody if you can't buy it twice you probably can't afford that yeah that's a really good point you know um money is important to talk about for people who give a damn because if you can't like money is such a stressful thing like the lack thereof puts so much stress and strain on marriages and partnerships and families and communities and if you don't have that freedom then mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to live at your fullest, right? Like I, I, I live a very, I'm a minimalist. I did a TEDx talk a couple of years ago on it. Like I lived out of two bags for eight years. And uh, like, I try to have very few things, but that doesn't, that is not mutually exclusive to making as much money as I can so that I can take care of my own and then have plenty of money to do good with, right? Like I don't need a lot of things. I don't buy shit that I, I definitely don't buy shit that I can't buy twice, you know? And t- taking that stress off of your life is super, super important. Being yeah. able to live freely and ready to uh, give and to be, g- be uh, generous toward others and to projects and to things because money is the missing component, right? If you look at, if you look at the lack of water in the world, you know, hundreds of millions of people that don't have clean water, it's 2020, right? Like we should be able to eradicate that. The systems are in place. Great, great organizations like Charity Water and others like that, they've got the system in place to build sustainable wells that'll be checked on and repaired and, and sustained throughout their lifetime. What's the one missing piece? Money, right? And we're not focusing on making, uh, we're, we're all, I think people are focused on, uh, I don't know how to say this without sounding, uh, you know, potentially condescending toward people. I'll just leave it at that for now that we need to, no, I think you could say you can, this is your own podcast. You can condescend. You're condescending a straw man. I, I I'm, I'm not going to try to trap you into saying something. People are going to tweet at you for, no, but go for it. what I will say on the money side is money is, cannot solve all the human sufferings. No, it can on the short term, but I yeah. think what's more again, aside from the, what I just said, which people are going to be like, what? Like there are billionaires giving half of their, money away and we're still we still have disease poverty war starvation we still have all those things what you have to ask at a micro level as an individual is if i overspend for my life my existence on this earth will my mark i'll make will be smaller because i can't use my money to make the impact my life will make Mm. i hope i make tens of millions of dollars. I hope I make hundreds of millions of dollars in my life and career because I know what uh, I will do with that. Yep. 
But at the same time, I think there's people that fall into that. Like when I make this X yep. uh, trap and the reality is if you won't give 10% out of a dollar, you're not going to give 10% out of a million. It's not happening. If you're not generous with your $2,000 a month salary, with your $1,000 a week salary, with your $10,000 a month salary, if you're not generous with that, if you're not using that to prove that you give a damn about the world, using that to repair the world, using that to heal the world, it doesn't matter how much money you have. You're not going to do it. Or you're going to do it at such a minute level, it's not commiserate with how much resource you have. I mean, if you think about, and we'll get there at some point, but if you- When you think about Adopt Together, when I was when I launched Adopt Together, I was making eighteen hundred dollars a month was my monthly salary. Wow, that was my that was how much I made as a person when I launched this thing. Like so, you so people could look at this and be like, "Oh man, whatever." Like I work in music and I'm around a lot of like wealth and resource now, but that ten years ago when I was having these initial conversations, I made eighteen hundred dollars a month. I didn't know how to raise money. In my mind, raising money was if I could raise $5,000, I thought I would smoke a cigar and have a bottle of champagne. Does that make yeah. sense? Yep. I look at $5,000 now like, yeah, you could give that to a family. I'm not even, your metric shifts and changes. Yep. And I would see people giving lots and lots and lots of money. But I was finding a way, making $1,800 a month to launch and, and self-fund with my father as well and with a couple other friends we were figuring out how to be generous with our little. And so if you can't figure out right now, wherever you are in your life, how to use your money to spend less on your life so you have enough to spend something to make an impact on it, it doesn't matter if the if the universe or God, it doesn't matter if life gives you a $10 million because uh, you'll either bury it in the ground or spend it on yourself. Yeah, I, just, I know that's true. I've seen rich people be so cheap with others. Yep. And it's just, it's tragic, man. Like it's well, so tragic. No, no, no. You're, you're spot on. If you look at every, uh, if you look at every faith background, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, doesn't matter where you Jewish, like it doesn't matter where you go. Or even if you, if you, if you like the Stoics, it doesn't matter who you look back at. Yes. They were all, they all say the same thing about money. Like don't want it. Like don't want it in, in, a, in, a, in the bad way, in the, in the greedy way. Like don't, don't crave money in the way that foolish people do. Like be generous now, right? If you look at the, you know, in the Christian faith, one of my favorite, you know, stories, the woman with the, her last coin, right? And she gave that last coin and uh, that was it. And Jesus said, she's way more, she's, she's way better off than those guys who gave so little that it didn't even hurt them at all, right? And uh, so I, 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 big bags. I, I, I would, the only place I'd disagree with you is I think the wanting of money and wanting of resource is a holy thing. I don't, I think actually it's, I think in Christianity, let's go with just Christianity. Cause I was a Christian pastor for a very long time. So the scriptures are, I'm a my, Christian, I'm a Christian as well. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again. Like I was a Christian pastor for a long time. Jesus tells the story of the foolish servant who took the resource that his master entrusted to him and buried it in the ground because he was afraid of him and he talks about the tenants these guys he buried buried his talents in the ground this other one turned two into four the other one turned two into ten the other one turned ten into a hundred and he says whoever has is given more like more and wealth and resource jesus somehow had enough money to feed five thousand people and didn't spend it so instead he used this kid's loaves and fishes to feed five thousand people Jesus was surrounded by wealth, surrounded by resource. 
his stories are about having those things. What I would agree with you on, which is right about Buddhism, it's right about, and Buddhism, I'm going to put it in a separate category because there is a lot about want and desire and the removal of desire. But if you take the spirituality of Christianity, you look at, it has to flow through you. Stoicism, it has to flow through you. It's the belief and faith in your own self that I hope a lot of resource flows through my life. Yes. But it's you, I'm like an apple. I heard this best, best example. And I, it was like a, a midrash from a, um, from a rabbi where he said, an apple is never worried when you, ch- when you pick an apple off of its tree, it will grow another one. Mm-hmm. So beware the apple tree that doesn't want to give you its apples because they're all going to be rotten. And I look at that like money should flow through my life. If money ever comes in and stops where I'm not investing it, I'm not risking, I'm not giving, I'm not paying taxes, I'm not spending it on my household. If money just flows through and stops, it will rot. It's it's not going to work. So that's where I will agree with you. I think the, 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 the lust for and greed for money is a destructive, awful task. But the desire that that wealth and resource would flow through you, the most the most uh, greedy people can be in the middle of that, and then also some of the most people that are incredible at turning a dollar into ten. I think your goal should not be about how do I avoid the desire for money, or your goal shouldn't be how do I not spend a single dollar in my life, but how can I position myself so that wealth and resource flows through my life? And in order to do that, you want to make sure that you're fertile. And to be fertile, you have to be investing and risking and spending and thoughtful and pay all your bills on time. Does that make sense? Like that's the only part that I would say is like there is a sense in which God entrusts you with little and you turn that into much. And I think that's financial. I think it it's your it's your 401ks and it's what you invest in and it's what you do with your money and how you spend it on taking care of your house and investing wisely because this is the resource that I, I, I believe you, you just, you, you become a steward of that. And if you have, you're given more, it's people say you have to have money to make money. And that's true because the having of it or the getting of it somehow is sort of the, the universal law of money. No, I don't disagree with you at all. The, 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 the want of money that I was talking about, I'm sort of picturing like Scrooge McDuck, you know, like swimming through his coins, you know, like just kind of hoarding up for himself. And the Bible also has, you know, the, 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 the storehouses, the grain, the grain houses that it wasn't getting used for the neighbors. It wasn't, it wasn't the resources flowing through that wealthy person. They were keeping it all for themselves. So I, I totally agree as well. And I do think that's an important thing for damn givers to realize is that if you really want to impact the world, I'm not in a, and I also don't want to discredit people that have taken, you know, uh, they're being used in a different way. People that have taken like vows of poverty, you know, that have done amazing things, you know, the, the mother Teresa's of the world and people like that, that have done a lot with a little, that's all. I think that what we're saying doesn't discredit that, but I do think by and large being smart, yes. being wise, building yes. a skill set. So of you your listeners, make- of your listeners, 99.9% of them have not taken a voluntary vow of poverty. No, they're just, they're poor What's because, that? yeah, they're, they're not making money because they're not being wise or smart. And yeah, they're, yeah, they're not being intentional about it. Or you haven't had the opportunity or you don't see the route yet. And sometimes it's okay. And I think the brilliance of money is that it is um, a maximizer. If you're a generous person, you'll be more generous when you have more money. If you are lonely, money will make you lonelier. Uh, it will make you question all your relationships when you start making real money or you're around celebrity people. You'll be like, I think they're only here because of, like it's a maximizer. Right. And I think 
I think the best thing for people to do or listen to your podcast who might be like, man, I'm not there yet, or I'm early on in my career or whatever. It's like you, you just take a deep breath and realize that this whole thing is a process. And that money or that moment, you are building the tools to have it. I can remember the first time when I would turn 16 years old, my dad gave me an E-Trade account. And I was like, that, and all my friends like were like, what? My dad gave me money in an E-Trade account. And he said, if you double it, I'll match it. Wow. Whenever it doubles it, I'll match it. Because he wanted us to be aware of how to manage $500, $1,000, because he knew at some point when I'm 36 or 46 or 56, hopefully that's hundreds of thousands. Hopefully that's a million dollars. Well, what am I going to do with a million dollars if I can't figure out how to buy and sell stocks or understand the market and how it overreacts to news? And does that make sense? Like those yeah. are the kinds of things that I think are helpful to start and realize wherever you are in your career, wherever you are in your money, wherever you are with all of it, you're you're. it's all a part of the process. Like I think there has to be a sense of, the most dangerous thing you can be around money is impatient. Yeah. You'll spend to get things that you'll spend too much to get things because you want them now, or you'll do things unscrupulous things or unwise things to get the money too fast. And I think it, it, money actually has this interhelix. You and I don't have to do a separate podcast about that. The helix of money, money and time. Uh, mm. People trade time to get money and then they trade money to get that time back. And there's a sense in which Finance is built off of the value of money over time. So we could talk a long time about that. I would just say for your listeners who are hearing us guys talk about money, patience, man, like it's all a process. I love that. Wise words. Yes, let's do a separate one on that because I think there's I think there's a lot there. As 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 let's give a damn develops, I'm learning that it's not just about, and that's become so evident in the last year or two. It's not just about having these conversations, it's not just about highlighting how people are giving a damn. People need to learn. They don't know how to give a damn. They don't know how to live a meaningful life. So many people are coming from families and backgrounds and communities that just aren't living intentionally. This is this is the stuff they need to be hearing. So I'm I'm super grateful for your wisdom there. Let's um we have a lot to cover. So let's 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 jump into the uh, adopt together stuff because cool. that'll also involve. Usually I start with some story stuff. I want to know your background. Your background is going to come out in the adopt together stuff because it's been an integral part of your family for, uh, well, since 1929, right? If my math is correct. So give me, the, give me the lead up to how did Adopt Together start? And then we'll get into all the adoption stuff. How did it start? How did it come about? Um, give me some framework for why this is important to you. Yeah, I grew up in a state certified foster home. Uh, my parents were, my biological parents had three of us biologically. And then decided that um, my mom said that God put her on earth to be a mother. And my dad said that God put him on earth to make her happy. So we started fostering children and got certified in Montgomery County in Dayton, Ohio. We started fostering children when I was seven years old until I was 14 years old. And in those seven years, we had over 36 kids come through our home. And some would stay for multiple years. Some would stay for just a matter of a few days or weeks through respite care. And some would stay for uh, mere months. So it was that process that that was my upbringing. Now, I was homeschooled because my parents did not believe in public education. I know there may be some public educators and there's maybe some teachers and my kids go to school. And so I, there's nothing there's nothing against school. My right. parents just firmly believed that 
my mom said that public education or formalized education is brainwashing and crowd control is what mostly it is. And she preferred to keep brainwashing in the comfort of our own home. So she wanted to just make me see the world the way she wanted to. So we all lived at home. I was a diaper changing, food preparing, house cleaning, grass mowing machine of a kid. Like I, I can't sit still. People come over to my house and I'm like fussing around with something or moving tables or whatever. Like that's just, I don't know. Dude, we're like that. fucking twins, man. And I'll tell you more about it in a second. Keep going. Yeah. So uh, I grew up like that. And then we started adopting children. We adopted my little sister, Hope, from foster care, adopted, uh, foster to adopt, and then proceeded to adopt uh, eight more children from six different countries. My parents were, they went to China, they went to India, they went to uh, Guatemala, they went to Cleveland, uh, which few brave souls dare to do. And, yeah. uh, you know, they went all, our family just continued to grow and grow and grow over that course. Um, it was incredible to grow up in a household where I would have my black brother on my shoulders, my Chinese brother in my left hand and my Bolivian sister in my right hand and walk through a grocery store and have them look at us and be like, what, like in rural Ohio where they don't, you, you basically have black neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, and then like an Indian doctor who lives in the, in the neighborhood. You don't have like biracial families. You don't have multiracial conversations. You don't see a car where there's five different countries represented. Like that is a unique thing to have happen. So that was my upbringing. Then I moved to Los Angeles in 2005 and I start meeting people who are hearing stories about my family or like, I mean, I was, that was my, my life calling card. I was like, dude, you're, what is, you know, and I show up to LA. I'm like, finally, I'm somewhere where there, I can see people of different nationalities and I can eat Armenian food and I can eat Korean food and I can eat Thai food. I, I could finally sort of taste the world in a way that I had sort of experienced growing up. And I remember my dad called and said, um, your mom and I want to do like a foundation or something. So we need to think about, and I was the idea, I'm the idea guy in the family. He's like, we need to think about how to help families adopt like we did, but we're too old, you know, cause the countries, a lot of times, even cities, they have a barrier. You can't adopt once you pass a certain age. And my parents were getting older and, I remember, so I just started finding families who were adopting and calling my dad and being like, hey, I need a check for, you know, the Isaacs. And he'd be like, okay, I'll bring them over to the house, whatever. They'd come over, he'd write a check, he'd help them with their adoption, and then they would go on about their way. He calls me like five or six families in. He's like, this is not sustainable. We need to come up with a solution somehow. And I was watching the Stephen Colbert report. And there's a guy that had created a website where he could help girls get boob jobs for free. And it was called myfreeimplants.com. And basically you, a girl would go online and tell if I have, if I got a boob job, I could get better tips and I could go to law school. Or if I got a boob job, I'd marry the man of my dreams, whatever. And then philanthropic men would then go online and donate to these women's uh, initiative. Okay. And I call my dad, I'm like, dude, you need to go to myfreeimplants.com. He's like, what are you talking? I'm like, he's like, I'm at the kitchen table with my iPad. And I'm like, no, no, no. Right now, go to myfreeimplants.com. And he's like, all right, let me, let, me, let me look at this thing. He's like, what is this? And I was like, dude, we'll create profiles for families who are adopting and people will give to it. Now, mind you, there's no such thing as GoFundMe. There's no yeah. Kickstarter. Go, crowdfunding was not even a phrase or a term you could Google. It didn't mean anything. It was not a law. Now you can crowdfund actually privately held companies and you can do that. That This was not a thing. So 
whoever the father of implant world was, he like gave us the idea to sort of start building this. My dad was like, dude, let's do this. And uh, that was 2010, I think we filed with the IRS. At the IRS pushed back asking, what is this crowdfunding idea you speak of? It sounded so crazy. We had to keep reporting. This is how it would work. We had to convince them of the model of crowdfunding, which right now the IRS would be like, oh yeah, it's crowdfunding. Uh, that was 2010. We launched in 2000. We launched about a year and a half later once we built the code. Launched in 2012, and it was off to the races. That's amazing. So, couple couple parallels here. Uh, I grew up in Guatemala. My dad came to the U.S. when he was a kid as an undocumented immigrant family. We went back when he was in his 30s, and we were all young. I'm one of 12 kids. So they adoption was not part of our family. My parents had 12 children, one at a time. Jeez, your poor in, mother. Insane. She still works. I mean, she is 60. She's she is she is superwoman. If they need a if they need it for, you know, if they need it for one of their movies, like I've got the woman for you. Like she still works full-time job. Doesn't oh look gosh. a day, she doesn't look a day over 50. Um, and raised 12 kids in a foreign country. It oh was insane. But I but I when you were talking about how you were growing up. Like that was me. Like I'm the second oldest of 12 kids. My brother, oldest brother, who um, he's he's amazing now, but he was a fucking troublemaker when he was growing up. And he was always into this and that and the other. Wasn't really playing the part of older brother. So I was I was it. And I'm I have like high responsibility. I'm an Enneagram eight type A. Like just real. I just want to fix shit. I just want to take care of stuff. Take care of people. And so I was, and you know, if you're an Enneagram eight, you also want to tell everybody what to do at all times. So that's, yes. that's and I was, good. and I was, and I was good at it in, in my, in my, hopefully I'm still fairly humble with that. I'm working on it. But, but back then I didn't know any better. And I just, I, I think I genuinely used that for good in our family and, you know, cooked meals and, and kind of just kept everybody in line as one of the older brothers of this family. Um, so that's really cool that you also, it's, it sounds like you were similar in that, in terms of, you know, always doing stuff, always taking care of, what, what is second, what is your Enneagram? You were, second, you were second oldest of 12, I was second oldest of 11. Um, so, and I had an older sister, so, you know, I was, she was, it was really her and I, we tag teamed the leadership yeah. of that clan. Uh, and all the foster kids too. My Enneagram is, I'm seven. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's in large part probably a response to uh, foster care is a traumatic and terrible experience for everyone involved. Yeah. Um, family preservation is always my first preference. It's always the preference. It's the healthiest thing for a child. Uh, foster care is the is a brutal in between. It is like you're not you don't, you don't, you're not anywhere. You're not home and you're not permanently any place. And I think that's an incredibly destructive thing for a child's experience. Um, I think if, if the systems need to evolve, they need to evolve and the family preservation process needs to happen more rapidly. I love, I don't know if this is controversial or not. I love what Oregon did by decriminalizing the possession of hard drugs and seeing it as a health yeah. issue, not a criminal issue. Yep. That is a hundred years late. But if someone is having a drug problem and is going in and out of jail, but we're trying to preserve the family, that child is the one that deals with that shit for their whole existence in life. Yep. And there's a reason that 80% of the prisoners in the United States uh, have been in their foster care system. Yep. 
if there was if there was 80 if 80 percent of anything in your life was wrong which by the way we could talk about the industrial prison complex and like justice reform and all the ways in which that's very right for some people who are making it very right and there's generational issues there we could deal with but it's i think we could all agree universally it's wrong that people are in prison if 80 percent of people who were in a wrong thing if 80 percent of cancer was caused by smoking cigarettes you go let's start campaigns we should stop that or if 80% of deaths were caused by driving cars, we would find a different, like 80% of prisoners in the United States, it's a real statistic, you can Google it right now, are in our foster care system. It tells you where the damage happens to people to people and to children. So my seven emerged from, we had 36 foster kids come through our home and those kids came to us broken and were in some cases ripped out of our family's life. So when you have children that are broken and a family that is grieving, you learn in my case, part of being in charge is I got to bring joy and I got to bring the fun and I got to bring enthusiasm and I got to make sure this is not a heavy place to live. So I think my seven emerged out of the pressure cooker that was a, a really painful environment for, for a lot of us. Yep. The family unit is so, so important. And I mean, if you look at, I mean, just grab a random human off the street, talk about the shit they're dealing with. And most likely a lot of it goes back to daddy issues or mommy issues or things that happened. Right. And so when you, and that's in a, that's in a, and I'm using air quotes, like normal functioning family, right. Where dad and mom were around. Now take that away, and they're being thrown. I, I'm. Do you know who Rob Shear is from Comfort Cases? Do you know? Do you know that name? Mm-hmm. Rob Shear grew up in the foster care system as well, and now he runs an organization called Comfort Cases. He's based in D.C. He's wonderful. They have adopted uh, f- four or five kids with his husband Reese, and they. So he. So Comfort Cases is all about providing. We can't fix the foster system right now, but we can give them, you know, every kid carries all historically has carried all of their stuff right from home to yeah. home in this trash bag. That's it's sort of it's sort of known they like yeah, carry totally. it in, a, in a trash bag. So they give them this this comfort case, this case with all these things that really help them out and they keep in touch with them and obviously help in, in different ways. It, it spreads from there once they know that they're loved by this organization and these people. Um, but yeah, it's so, it, that's, that's so true. I mean, we could spend hours on the prison industrial system and yeah, no, there's a lot of people profiting off of pain and crime in the world. But what I would say is, you know, I think we do have it wrong, even about what period of time we gather our issues. And again, as adults and as human beings, everybody has a different experience, a unique experience. I remember I was talking to uh, a gentleman who's the head neuroscientist at a very uh, effective and really well-known treatment facility in Arizona. And I asked him, what's the most surprising thing you've seen in dealing with you know, addictions and behavioral issues and people who need to go to rehab for 28 days? And um, you know, what's interesting is he said, he said, the first thing they do when you show up at, the, at our facility is you draw out a life map. I was born here. This is what happened to me. This is when my parents got divorced. This is when my life, all the sorts of things. And he said, I go from zero to five and I tear it off. I don't even care what happened to you after you were five years old. I can look at zero to five and I can tell you exactly why you're here. Wow. And I just think we, 
if there's a window or a period of time that we as a human race, like if you were, if I was an alien coming down to this country and, you know, or not coming down because they're already here, right? So they're here and they're drifting. what they say. I was, if I, let's say I was revealing myself and saying, hey, I've been here, I'm paying attention. You got to watch out for your kids, man. That zero to five window is determining the future of so much. And we are all capable of turning trauma into beauty and turning ashes into something great. And and that is always going to be true of us. Yeah. But for us as a society, we grossly underestimate the impact that is had between zero and five and the kids in foster care, kids in schools. What happens to children in that window is uh, unbearably determinant of what's going to happen to them as an adult and how they will handle things like an asshole of a dad or a bully at school or a trauma or some a losing a parent or parents getting divorced. That's all informed by what happens zero to five. So that's a part of the passion for me about Adopt Together is the sooner that children can be either be reunited with their families or be joined with and bonded to a permanent family, the better our children are going to fare as adults. It's the better, and I say our children as in humans, offspring, the better our race, our people yeah. are going to, to be. So give, give me, give us, uh, give us some numbers. Like how big is this issue? How many yeah. uh, children are need to be adopted? Like in the adoption system in the foster care system. And then what have you all as adopt together been able to do over the Ooh. past few years? So, uh, there are 19 million double orphans in the world that we've monitored. Now, those global numbers are a little loose because it's very hard to register children in rural parts of the world, but 19 million double orphans, you would see uh, numbers like 143 million orphans. That means they've had a parent deceased. Um, 19 million orphans in the world, that's double orphans. That means both of their parents have uh, been deceased. What that doesn't monitor or check is a lot of times the oldest family member, and this is it during the worst of the AIDS epidemic in the early 2000s, you were having 12-year-old held ahead of households. That's not even registered. So I'm talking about children that are orphans, 19 million globally. We have anywhere between four and 500,000 children in foster care just in the United States alone. So you have half a million kids who, I mean, where I grew up, our whole county was only a half a million. There's 500,000 people who live in the state of Wyoming. So you have to think about the fact that the whole state of Wyoming, I don't know if that, if there's still only a half a million people, but a few, as of 10 it's years close. ago, it's close. there's only half a million people live in the state of Wyoming. The whole state of Wyoming is in foster care and uh, that's in the United States. So what we've been able to do is adopt together is look at both domestic and international. And we look at it as humans and children. A lot of people are passionate about domestic adoption. A lot of people are passionate about foster care and adoption. A lot of people are passionate about international we are agnostic to that process and saying we're about children in permanent environments, right? So for me, it's about going, we need permanence because that's what helps a child heal or keeps a child developing properly. So over the course of our, we launched on my 30th birthday and I'm about to turn 39. So we're about to be nine years old. We've helped over 6,200 families raise about $23 million to fund their adoption. Um, and a primary reason is that and why fundraising was such an important thing for me is 87% of families who considered adoption said the only reason they didn't do it is because it's too expensive. Eight, 7%. So I go back to like, just solve the biggest problem first. 
Yep. 87% of people who were like, you know what? We've talked about adoption. We've considered adoption. We'll look into it. That price tag for adoption, domestic, international, doesn't matter. It's anywhere between twenty dollars and $50,000. There are rare cases where you can adopt regionally children in your foster care system if they are available for adoption, they are adoptable, parental rights have been terminated. There's lots of different questions. You can adopt oftentimes for free or for just a couple thousand dollars in your county where that's not possible or sometimes people wait for months or years. You go domestic, you go international. You're looking at $50,000. If you're a cop and you make $50,000 a year, you don't have 50 cash before you can bring your child home. My daughter, when she was born, our hospital bill was $91,000 because she had some breathing issues. $91,000. Imagine them saying, Nick, imagine them coming to me and saying, Hank, you can bring your daughter home. Just have to pay this bill. I'm like, I, I don't know what, that's literally what's happening to all these parents who are saying, we're going to open our home. We have an extra bedroom. Nothing has to do with the cost of raising a child. It's a transactional fee. And so we said, let's launch Adopt together. Let's communally solve that transactional fee issue. And let's get children into families where they can afford the lifestyle of, of that child. They can afford what it costs to raise a child, not what it costs to to get them home. And so that's where the $23 million is gone. There's nobody in the adoption space making millions of dollars. There are no uh, child trafficker. I mean, there's child trafficking in the world, but there's not like the government isn't making money. I don't want to make, there's a small article that you can probably find or comments about them saying that I'm somehow making adoption an industry or whatever. And saying, why isn't this guy working to make adoption cheaper? Uh, I have a family and we drive cars in Los Angeles on the freeway. I am buying my family the most expensive car I can afford. I don't want them in the cheapest car they can drive because I'm trying to keep them safe. I'm getting them from point A to point B. I want that sucker to have all the technology, all the cameras, all the self-braking, all the, I'm, I don't want that car to be cheap. You get what I'm saying? It's like, yep. I don't want adoption to be cheap. I really don't. I think, I want there to be translators. I want there to be lawyers on both sides. I want birth mothers to get the opportunity to change their mind. I want families to have the opportunity to preserve. I want families. I want there to be everybody there to be doing their damnedest. I want them to be doing their job and getting paid to do it. And it should want it to get funded because you're talking about moving a child across the sort of freeway, so to speak, of one family to another or an orphanage to a family or a system to a family. And I, that should the great care should be taken there. That should cost a lot of money. I don't want a cheap cardio, cardiovascular surgery. I want the best in the freaking world because it's my heart from one place to another. And I think it's the same when it comes to the kids. So our focus has been on the funding uh, because it's the number one barrier. And we've had a, an incredible time being a part of 6,200 family stories. That's that's fascinating because obviously as someone in the adoption world, you know that there are people that are, yeah, that are advocating for adoption to be free, like much cheaper or free. And you're saying, well, if it's free, then lots of things are going to fall through the cracks and this is not going to run well. Is that sort of, is that sort of the... Uh, yeah, yeah. I would love for adoption to be free. They don't mean free. They mean government subsidized, which... Sure. Because it can't be there free. There's, there's so many people involved. Good example. My daughter's $91,000 hospital bill was covered by my insurance. And I paid 300 bucks. I mean, for a whole day there, I thought I was like, you know, uh, I thought I was done for financially. Yeah. But uh, 
if I paid $300. I wish there was a system and there's tax credits and there's lots of, there's lots of support. I don't want to make it sound like it's like this expense and it's got to live there. What I'm saying is uh, I don't want the government system to be doing more of that. I, uh, if you, you go to any city in any part of the world and say, let me see your foster care system. Maybe Scandinavia. It's the only ones I've found where I'm like, okay, you could replicate this. But again, they're dealing with a lot less human beings. They're dealing with a lot less of the cultural and societal issues that we have. So they don't have as many kids in that system. But I'm just not a fan of trying to discount or try to cut off money. I'm not, I don't think you try, whenever you try to make things cheaper, I use this example today with somebody. You ever have some work done at your house and you like pay a contractor to do a floor or a kitchen mm-hmm. or a bathroom? I negotiate for a living. That's literally what I do on behalf of artists and yeah. I negotiate all day long. So I will grind down the guy who gives me a bid to get something done. But if I go too far and I'm too good at that, I took away his margin. Now there's zero incentive for him to do a great job, zero incentive for him to show up. Zero Why do that to translators and to social workers and to people that are already spread Thin, I, that process should be one that everyone is, uh, is, is there's a fair exchange for the work involved. Uh, Hank, that is the first time that I've heard someone advocate for that, argue for that. And I've been around a lot of adoption conversations. Um, I think that's fantastic. I think that makes sense. It really, really does. Uh, you put it in terms that are really simple and understandable that if you make this to uh, that, that contractor analogy just now, that example, it's perfect. If you make it so cheap and if you push people to their limits, you're going to get a shitty, it's It's going to be a shitty process. But I'm saying, and my point is keep the process what it is. Yeah. I want the best people in the world focused on it. I want the best lawyer in the world, lawyers in the world, the biggest law firms focused on it. They should find a way to do a handful of them for free. No lawyer should be allowed to practice law in the state of California without doing one adoption for free a year. That should be like a requirement. What do we have? 200, 400,000 lawyers in the state of California? Yeah, that'd be amazing. California solved. There's systemic issues in ways that we make it work. But my point is there's lots of lawyers who would do a pro yep. bono adoption. There's lots of places like Adopt Together. There's lots of, Nick, if you were going to adopt, we would have your adoption funded. You and me. This podcast, your platform, our resources, you're funded in a day. So I just want money to not be a psychological barrier or to people use it as a cop-out. I want, it to, I want people to know there's hope. I want people to know there's possibility. I want birth mothers out there to know that, that parents who are desperate to adopt are out there and they have the resources and the people in the community to help them achieve it. And I want birth mothers to have that confidence and be like, okay, cool. I'll check out some of these books. My friends run this company called uh, Kindred Co. And they they basically put together these unbelievable books telling these stories of who these families are. So these birth mothers feel like they get to meet these people and choose. I, that That's what I'm hopeful of. And again, I'm not trying to pervasively saying I'm not a politician. I don't actually have any of that power. My power is all, uh, is all generously given to me by other people. I don't, does that make sense? I'm not a politician. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I have no authority that other people don't give me or loan me for a brief moment when I get to talk on a podcast or I get to speak somewhere or they listen to Instagram or a Ted talk, but I I'm only inviting people to think about it differently and I'm willing to put in the work to make it possible. Uh, very briefly, I, I think 
our failed adoption story has a little bit to do with what you're talking about as I'm thinking about it, as I'm as I'm processing really quickly here. So do you know do you know who John Piper is? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I used to work for John uh, back in the day. In in another lifetime, I I, I I I worked there, and that whole that entire ecosystem, the the church, the school, the all the stuff that they do, it very very much uh, embodies what I call a, a like sort of a poverty way of living. Um, they uh, skimp. And, and, and they, they're, it's a, it's a very cheap, like, let's get things done as cheaply and as quickly as possible. Um, and they're led by, you know, John, for people who don't know, like he's a, he is a very simple, you know, he's one of the most well-known Christian, uh, figures in the world. And he, he, you know, he wears like, he, he only wears, uh, the goodwill clothes and stuff like that. And so that's sort of the environment that I was in when we decided to adopt and, it was a, it was a, it was a domestic adoption, um, young girl in Alabama. Uh, we don't know the whole story, but we do know that she was, she was raped by someone close to her. She's 13. She was pregnant. And so she chose us and we went through the whole process. And I, I'm, I'm telling this for a reason the the lawyer that we chose, we didn't do enough homework and he came recommended by somebody else. So we had an, a lawyer in Minnesota and then our lawyer in Alabama and we chose him because he was affordable and he did a shitty job advocating for us. He was one of the main reasons that we ultimately lost that baby. He was terrible and he was cheap. And to your point, I believe that we would be parenting that young girl today if we had a quality lawyer that we paid the money they deserved to be paid and the process I, I literally I can take you back it would take a long time to go through the whole the whole timeline but he is one of the main reasons that mm. we dis, we decided it was based on money at the time and we yeah. decided to go with him and he he fucked it up like he where is the where who who where did the child end up the birth mom kept her at 13 and um, I still think about that little girl all the time because, I mean, obviously her her. Did, her did mom, she have help with the thirteen year old? No, she had. Well, she, I mean, she had a family that was already at their limits to what they could mm-hmm. do. The her stepfather was like, "We cannot do this," and even even the girl's mom, the the birth mom's mother, was like, "We can't do this." And then she kept asking for the baby over and over again. Uh, once the baby was born. And the lawyer, again, did a terrible job advocating for us. And she ultimately decided to keep the baby. Um, and so I, I think about her and pray for her all the time that she is well, because she was born to a 13 year old girl that was, you know, in eighth grade and was, you know, ra- it was just, it was, it was, a, it's a kind of a horrible situation that I hope has turned out for good. But I bring that up just to, to your point that making this process cheaper and pushing people to their limits in the jobs that they're good at, uh, it's probably not the best thing to do when the lives and futures of children are on the line. Well, well, it's something you said at the beginning of this podcast is that you feel like everything happens for a purpose. Yes. The only thing I would, if it's okay. And again, I know you guys went through a, a thing and that was traumatic and real pain, but the only thing I would reframe 
is that I would advocate for that 13 year old girl to keep that baby. And I don't mean that like her against your family or that that lawyer is an idiot or wherever it was, but uh, statistically and uh, philosophically, that child will be better off with her biological mother at a psychological level, even if, and this is a real statistic and you can Google it, even if uh, she endures abuse in her early ages. Hmm. It, it is, and so I don't mean that to diminish at all what no, your, no, no. your family would have given her, but adoption as a conversation begins with tragedy. It begins with those yeah. things. And I wouldn't advocate for a 13-year-old who changed her mind uh, to be told no. Like, and her stepdad and all these people saying, we can't do this, we can't do this. You know who else was born to a 13-year-old victim of rape was Oprah. Hmm. And yeah. that what and what a gift she is to the world of the yeah. 15 billion people who have been born over the last 200 years, Oprah has made an indelible mark on so many of us. And she was born to a 13 year old little girl who was raped. So I look at that and say, when your family, it did not happen. My uh, really good friend talks about it. And I, the way I describe the best way I can describe adoption is it's Bashir which is the Hebrew word for like uh, luck or meant to be or a soulmate. Like my mm. wife, my share, right? She just, she's who I have. It's not like she was before. It's like we've been brought into each other's life. So then it, therefore it becomes this love of the, of, of what is right now. And I think I would say the only thing I would say for your family is I think that story played out exactly how, and again, I don't know her story or where it is. I'm just saying in that unique instance, I wouldn't advocate for an adoptive family because guess what? That little girl, 13 years old, uh, can't go get raped again and can't have another baby again and carry a child to term and go through everything that she went through again. That's her one single solitary daughter, right? You as an adoptive family, you get to transition. You get to pivot. You get to, does that make sense? Does that make yeah. sense? And again, I, I don't mean that to, at all to say, to make light of the pain you guys cause because I talk to adoptive families all the time where moms change their mind, where it's next of kin shows up. I lived that 36 times in a row where next of kin would show up right when we were in an adoption process. And my little brother, who I still talk to right now over JPay because he's in prison because of the environment he went into that messed him up and he's in jail and he'll be in jail for the next five years. But we JPay each other. And I just bought him a TV yesterday. Um, again, the prison industrial complex is absolutely designed to rape citizens of the United States and people are making money and those, they are the criminals. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I know what that looks like for you. I, that's what I would say is I think I wonder because of what I know about Mr. Piper, if the environment you in was not just a scarcity environment that caused you to hire a cheap lawyer, but was also a determinist environment that felt like there was maybe some sabotage done of what should have been. And you were maybe told, this is your child and this is supposed to happen. And this is God's will. And those are all very destructive ideas that yeah. have been, have literally destroyed families and marriages and lives. And where I can appreciate John and his conviction to things, I vehemently disagree with him on his conviction. Cause I think he's done a ton of damage with people Agreed. by painting God in a certain way and, and really messing up people's human experience. Much of what John Piper talks about, is not compatible with a human life and yep. human experience. It works great on a stage for a guy in flip-flops to talk about it and 
speak about people's lives that way. It, it doesn't, that movie doesn't play. That's yeah. a great script on a piece of paper, but you turn on the cameras and that doesn't work. So that's what I would, I don't know. I'm not trying to like philosophize you on your own podcast or whatever. No, I'm no, just no. saying I would, I would reframe that for you and your family and say, it's exactly where she should be. And yeah, I hope and pray that she's in the right place, but I'll always advocate for a birth mother of any age of any circumstance to, 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 to preserve that family unit because it's true. Statistically, she's in a better place now because she's with her biological mother. I thousand percent agree. I stand by what I said at the beginning. Everything happens for a purpose. And I've prayed for that little girl a thousand times over the last 10 years. And every prayer has been, I hope she's well. It's yeah, never, it's totally. never been, ah, oh, fuck, like we missed our chance. It's never been that at all. And yeah. I, I learned that really hardcore because one year to the day after we, we woke up on January 1 of uh, 2011 and found out that, that, that the birth mother was going to keep her. And that was a sad day for us because we had, you know, we had, we were 14, $16,000 in at that point. And, you know, we were hoping to bring a baby girl home. Well, one year after that, on January 1 of 2012, our first daughter was born. Wow. One, one, literally almost, almost to the hour, uh, one year after we lost the other baby. And it was, it was God in the universe saying it's going to be okay. So I've never regretted it. I totally agree with you. I've said that a thousand times to people that have talked to us about our story over the years is, no, best case scenario is that that little girl gets to be with her mom. Oh, and, and I would be the biggest asshole in the world to say otherwise. And I'm saying even if they lived in a car, which some do-gooder would be like, man, she's living in a car with her daughter. Nah, man, like as long as she's safe and as long as she's with her mother. And again, I'm not advocating for it without knowing any of those details. I'm saying my sister did her graduate dissertation on this very thing of preserve, preserve, preserving families is always better for the kids. Even if there's drug abuse, even if there's sexual abuse, even if there's a lack of safety. And again, I, I, it's a very controversial element, but it is always better to preserve. And so for me, adoption is a beautiful story and is a beautiful opportunity uh, and is a beautiful last resort. I would never advocate for adoption as a first measure. It is only a it is only a last resort, and I hope whoever that was in whatever city that was in kept really close tabs on a thirteen year old, made sure she was okay, and then let adoption be the last resort, not the first. I love that. So, so I'm not. I'm not. I think a lot of times, like adoption advocates are out there running around talking about how amazing adoption is. I think adoption is an amazing way to take a traumatic tragedy and turn it into a beautiful story. I do not think adoption is like is the ideal. So how does, uh, no. And I, I, uh, and I'm not saying you are either. Sorry. I'm not even projecting that on you or your family. I'm just saying I'm speaking to the people on this podcast who are like, man, adoption, like I'm an adoptee or I got pulled out of my country and I, I don't discount any of that. And for me, adoption is a beautiful story only insofar as it redeems tragedy, but I, we don't make light of that tragedy by the, by, by the adoption journey. So how do you and your team at Adopt Together make sure, you know, you talk, you said, I think it was 6,200 families, I think you said. Yep. Um, how do you all make sure that that isn't happening in the families that you help in terms of making sure that it is the right sort of match and that 
preservation is happening, if that's if that's available, like what's going on internally as I mean, obviously, this is something that you, you know, believe in so passionately and you're, you know, you've worked out over the last eight, nine, 10 years. So 6,200 families, tens of millions of dollars, 60 something countries, something like that. Like, how do you all make sure that that isn't happening in your organization or, or do you just do the best you can? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, we have to trust the process. And like any process or any governmental system, there's going to be errors built among them. And I'm going to err on the side of making, of trusting the process that are in place. Again, like I said before, I'm not a politician. I have no governmental authority. I can't shut down the uh, predatory prison system or the predatory. Do you know that to call your family is $25 a minute sometimes? To call your family that's in jail. You need to do a whole prison reform podcast and I'll introduce you to everybody because I dare the Senate and House Republicans, Democrats, independents. I will sit you down at a laptop and try to send a dollar to somebody you love in prison. And I promise you, you give them 30 minutes and a computer, not a single one of them will be able to do it because it's exhausting. And like, it's just insane. But what I would say about I have to trust those processes, even though some of them at some level are flawed. To our knowledge, we don't know which ones they are. And when we do, uh, we'll, we'll pull out of it. But for us, we, we're trying to fill that slot that feels like the empty one. It's not subsidized by the government for you to get adopted. It's not subsidized for you to fund your adoption. So we're handling the funding piece in order to adopt through us or to fundraise through us. There's two things that are happening. One is we're a self-healing fundraising system. Nick is going to email all of his friends, hey, guys, I'm adopting, and uh, you can you know, apply or you can donate to my adoption process. If you're a douchebag that's probably just fundraising for a BMW, all of your friends are going to read that on you, and nobody's going to do it. To sure. Does that make sense? Yep. So we have a lot of failed profiles. I don't dig in and try to figure out what it is, but I can dig around, and I can check and look around, and you'd be like, there, these may not, this, this, your community may not be alongside, they may not trust you, they may not be with you. You can kind of see that process. The second thing is we're trusting the adoption process. I'm not deciding who you adopt or where you adopt or if you're allowed to adopt. Your local county government's doing that. They're giving you a home study, making sure you don't have any drum, drugs, weapons, like you have a safe household in you. And if you can, if you can pass a, a home study in the state of Tennessee, you could you probably, you're better than Trump and his taxes. And like, you can, that's a fine tooth comb and you're probably better than every politician in Washington, D.C. in terms of your rep. So if a person has that, uh, we've got to trust that process. And again, there will be errors somewhere along the way, but that's not our role. There are system and checks and balances built in to ensure that. Let's talk about uh, a couple of your TEDx talks. Briefly on the TEDx Kishnau one. Uh, how, how did you do a TEDx talk in Chisinau? Most people don't even know where Chisinau is. I'm probably Nobody, one of the, I, I'm one of the few people who's been to Moldova. So I've been to nice. Chisinau, but like most people haven't. So how did you end up doing a TEDx talk there? And then we'll move on to the Hong Kong one, which I want to wrap up on. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Chisinau came because I had a friend named Sasha who I met in the Instagram comments of my friend who ran, owns a business in Nashville called D1 training sports training. Uh, and I know these guys for a little, really long time. And I commented and he commented, it sounds like we were dating, but we weren't at all. He just commented and said, what is adopt together? This is cool. And he was moving to LA at the time. So we, I was a pastor at the time. So he came to the church and I was like, Oh, cool. Nice to meet you, et cetera, et cetera. 
He's like, hey, I curate with a group of my friends. He'd seen me speak a couple of times, said I curate. Um, he's Moldovian, which I'd never met. I didn't know where Moldova was. I thought it was Maldives. Yep, I didn't yep. realize that Moldovian wine was so incredible. And if you drink French wine, it's the same latitude and longitude as France. So if you love French Bordeaux, you would love Moldovian wine. And everybody, you go to any Moldovan household, they have a wine cellar of wine they are making. They're all growing grapes. It's an incredible community. Amazing. The country's insane. And he said, I'm from Moldova and I am curating this TED thing in Moldova and I would love for you to come and speak. And I was like, I don't know where Moldova is and I've never been asked to give a TED talk. So sure, I don't, I'll go wherever. And I didn't know it was even going to be filmed and broadcast. I wasn't aware of that piece. I just, I'm so passionate about obviously the conversation. I wanted a chance to have the dialogue and adoption in foster care is a real issue in Moldova. Their relationship with the Ukraine and Russia is very complicated. So I wanted a chance to be there. And so I paid my own way. I went and flew out and did it. And, uh, you know, it's crazy that I've seen so many TEDx's around the country since then. And here you are in, a, in the poorest country in Europe. Moldova is the poorest country in Europe. They are the Haiti of Europe in terms of GDP. Their GDP, I believe, in 2017 was $1 billion. That's the GDP of New Jersey. Okay. It's wild. So it's wild. I'm in the poorest country in Europe, and it had the most incredible production, the most beautiful theater. Everybody was so kind and so amazing. And uh, it was it was really wild. So that's how I ended up in Chisinau. And that TEDx talk, it changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, it changed Adopt Together. It changed World Adoption Day. It changed everything we were working on because... Uh, it, it gave a new framework for people to hear me speak. It's a, it's incredible what what Chris Anderson and the and the TED team have done by giving people the opportunity to to locally curate. I love Moldova. I dream of going back. It, I had a beautiful several weeks there, and I will forever love that country. I I love. I've been to some of the greatest cities and the greatest countries in the world, and the ones that I love the most and miss the most are places like that because people are just so fucking genuine and it's, it's so beautiful. The food's great. The people are wonderful. Um, I just love that we have that connection. Dude, because, and you can live large in Moldova. Oh, on, like, you can make a few grand a month and live like a yeah, penthouse, like a, everything like a Senator. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. It's big. And I, and I, I don't want to, uh, even get any further in this conversation without mentioning that it was just World Adoption Day just a couple days ago. Yeah, how, two days how, ago. How did you guys, I know you guys did some online thing. How did you guys navigate this year's sort of celebration? Well, we navigated it for a couple ways. We usually do baby ball, which is our kickoff. And yep. to me, World Adoption Day is, oh, I used celebrities and whoever I could get a hold of to help us launch it. But really, it's not about celebrities. It's not about press. It's not about those things. It's about people connected to adoption and family celebrating the way that the fabric of their family changed because of adoption. And um, this year, because of all the election madness, hashtags were blocked. So we couldn't use the hashtag, which is really how we launched. So it was incredible, man. We had 62 countries um, participate. We had hundreds of thousands of posts from around the world, from Australia and Italy and Canada and Saskatchewan and um, so many people in Italy and Armenia and Azerbaijan and people posting from around the planet with a smile on their hand to celebrate Amazing. adoption. And, you know, we started the day in 2014 because all of the conversation around adoption that I could find was all negative. It was um, stories of Russian adoptions, stories of failed adoptions. And I wanted one day, I know that 
adoption. Like I said to you, adoption is a last, last resort in a tragic situation. I don't diminish any of the trauma surrounding it, but I wanted one day where people could celebrate that this thing called adoption, that really is a sacred idea. um, It changed the trajectory of so many of our lives. And so I just said, let's do one day where we celebrate with a smile on our hand and it, 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 it has become, I mean, it's an official day in South Africa. It's an official day in many cities in the United States where it's been logged because ambassadors of ours have said, I work for the, you know, local Congress in Illinois, I believe Tennessee. Uh, we had a gentleman who was the chief of staff for a governor of the um, state of Tennessee who made it an official day. It's in the notes. It's referenced in Congress on a Monday does that make sense? And again, it was, there was a lot of election madness happening. So a lot of it got missed, but it was a huge day to celebrate. We, we, we love getting to do something that really connects the adoption community in, in a really open way. That's really beautiful. Okay. Let's spend the last few minutes together. You've been so generous with your time. It's 1120 my time, 920 oh, your time. Uh, Oh man, I'm loving this. I, I could, I could I keep thought going. this was going to be 20 minutes. I was like, Oh, it'll be 20 minutes. Let's see what happens. I will, I will wrap up. No, no, no. I, I could do this for forever, but um, I want to be I want to be aware of your time as well. Let's wrap up talking about no more adoption stuff. That was amazing. Let's talk about another TED, TEDx talk you gave on. Uh, you gave this one in Hong Kong and it was on togetherness. So right now you've referenced the election madness. Um, the pandemic has sent the world into a frenzy. Uh, understandably so. We've had all this racial tension in the United States. So much so, so big, so loud that the whole world is getting involved, right? Like during some of those marches that that I marched in, maybe you marched in, like, I mean, there are countries all around the world that were marching on our behalf, right? There's just horrible things that we had to face this year that hopefully we will not turn away from again. Hopefully we will make progress, make the necessary changes. But what's true is that we are more polarized and more divided than ever. I mean, yeah. it is an absolute shit show. And and social media has not done us any favors mm-hmm. uh, because now people can be, uh, you know, I would never say certain things to your face, but if you were just an, an avatar, you know, if you're just a face online and I can start saying all sorts of shit to you and it doesn't affect me at all because I'm just sitting behind my laptop at home and it's just, it's really gross out there. And I'm sad that I've participated a little bit in it, but I've tried to rise above it. It's just been a really hard few months. And you gave this talk on togetherness. So let's spend a couple minutes as we wrap up on like, if you could have a bullhorn, if you could have a megaphone to our country, to everyone in the country, the United Mm -hmm. States of America, deeply polarized, deeply divided. Our commander in chief is uh, not doing us any favors. He has single-handedly done so much of this over the last few years of his presidency. What would you, with bullhorn in hand, everyone's attention, what would you communicate to Americans? Uh, there are people listening from all over the world on this podcast, but the large, largest chunk of them are in the North America. What would you say to everybody about our current state and how we need to move forward? Because it's not working to be far left or far right on any issues, right? This like, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm right, fuck you. That's all that's happening right now. There are very few people advocating for love and compassion and truly trying to move forward on the issues that we need to face. 
Let's not ignore them. I'm not advocating for ignoring them and seeing Kumbaya around the bonfire. But I, but I do know that the way that we're doing it is not the right way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would you say? What would you communicate to our brothers and sisters and everybody living in this country? I, 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 I'm hesitant to say this great country. It's great in certain ways, but we're, we're fucked up, man. We need, we need some serious help. Um, so what would you say to everyone? How would you communicate to them right now? I would say a Hebrew phrase, Tukin Olam. It is a phrase that uh, a friend of mine just texted me this actually to remind me of it. It is the Hebrew phrase that of the, in the Torah is used to describe the Jewish way of repairing the world. It is a Tukin Olam is like a practice of your job as Nick, my job as Hank is to repair our world through kindness, through being a part of a healing of it. So imagine, I want you to imagine that the world is in a, a tumultuous place, that we're in a painful place. And it's, a, it's not pain that you could explain to an animal. Does that make sense? It's, in some cases, it's bleeding. In some cases, but most of it, our pain, our angst, our groan as a human race right now is it's racial, it's societal, it's systemic, it's old, it's wounds, it's uh, terrible supremacy of the white nationalists who have like embed themselves in our country. It's a broken system that has done things globally around the world to black and brown people that is criminal in and has been criminal as all these things that was normal. It's all those things, right? And it's all the things that right here, right now, everyone would likely unanimously agree, man, we need to heal. Although almost all of us would agree with that. Their way of doing that is to realize it's finding different ways of bringing kindness and healing to whatever is closest to you right here, right now. Dave Chappelle reminded us, us of this on Saturday Night Live, where he said, think about how you felt when Donald Trump won and how sad you felt and how burdened you felt and how heavy you felt. There's a 72 million people who feel that way right now who are afraid, genuinely. Yep. When Donald Trump won in 2016, people were genuinely afraid. 70 million people were afraid. 100 million people were afraid. In some bizarre way that you don't even have to understand, there's 100 million Trumpites, people who voted for Trump, who are scared. They're scared for their families, for their money, for war. They're scared. And I think people are afraid. And I think the only thing to relate to fear and injustice and wounding is kindness. And you have to be kindness that repairs. It has to find that way. Because here's the, the factor. Politics at every level, even a thousand years ago, even when they were pharaohs and kings and queens and lords and ladies, has always been us and them. Yeah. Us and them. Where the great trick that American politics pulled on us is that somehow the politicians like Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and I'm going to put them in the same category, a thousand years ago, that was them and you and I were us. And it was, man, we got to put those guys not on a pedestal. We put them on on a on a chopping block and look at them and say, are they honest? Are they trustworthy? What, what are they doing for us as a people, as a society? How are they leading us? But instead, modern politics is us and them, meaning me against my neighbors, against the people who vote for him, against the people who think like that, against people. They tricked us. The politicians did this on purpose. You think you think all of Washington, D.C. wants to be on the chopping block from the American people? No. no, they want you and I arguing against each other, not putting pressure on them. And I think there's a whole lot of people who are relieved that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are in the White House 
and they're simultaneously skeptical about what change they're going to bring and make, and they better deliver. Does that make sense? In the same way, there's a lot of people who are who are scared to death that Trump is like going to make this a longer issue along the way. Does that make sense? Like, but it should always be a questioning of authority. You should always question people in power. You should always question somebody who narcissistically drives their entire life onto controlling other people. You should wonder about that person who spends a half of a century in politics. I'm not saying Joe Biden is a bad guy. I'm saying there should be always questions yeah. on him. That's a lot of power that a human being has. Let's ask those questions without threatening what political affiliation I have or what loyalty I have. I think the way that the best way we can do it is to take a deep breath as a globe, as a society, specifically as a country and a city and say, where can I right now in my place, where can I repair the world? Where can I repair my world and not yell at my neighbor because they vote like their grandparents did, but rather just take a deep breath and be like, man, where can I repair my world with kindness, with a kind word, with a, with a generous moment, with where can I give a damn? And I think if everybody in the on the planet just chose moments where they go, I'm just going to give a damn about the, with this coworker, with this neighbor, with this person, I, I think we'd move to a much, much, much better place. Amen. A thousand amens. Where can people find you online to follow who you are and what you're doing? You're Hank on Instagram, right? Yep. And Hank Four letters. on Twitter. H-A-N, at H-A-N-K on Instagram. Are you, are you, have you tried to get Hank on, on, I'm sure you've tried to get Hank on Twitter as well, right? Yeah, this guy, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do that. I mean, he probably responds to me the way I respond to people who tell me, Hey, can I have your handle? Right. Uh, I wanted it for synonymous. And he said, he's amused by my desire for it. And he has no intention to give that to me, but I don't tweet that often. Um, but I'm sure people will listen to what I said, take great offense at some level and love to tweet. I find a, it aggregates negative on Twitter because it's rare that people are like, oh my gosh, I have to tweet this really positive thought I have about this other person. That that doesn't usually happen. So no, no. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Hank on Instagram. Yep, and I'll in the show notes I'll link to your TEDx talks. They're great as well. Cool. Um, and I'll link to Adopt Together. Hopefully, people can get involved there. Please, yeah, um, we love it, man. This was uh, super fascinating, super fun. Thanks for the time. Awesome. Thanks for being, thanks for having me and sorry for being long winded. I really love what you're doing, man. And I, I'm rooting for you. I hope this podcast explodes for you. Appreciate it, man. Yes, sir. Thanks. Dear friends, I truly hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Hank Fortner. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for links to his social media, more about his work at Adopt Together and so much more. Hank, Thank you so much for joining me. Friends, while you're on letsgiveadam.fm, you can sign up for our email list. You can listen to the 180 other podcast conversations there. And sincerely, thank you for listening. I am overwhelmed, overjoyed, humbled that you come back week after week to listen to these conversations. This show is produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. And you can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'm here for you. Sending love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe and keep giving a damn. Bye for now.